I feel like I have 15 years left where I'm physically and mentally going to be able to make a contribution and not be dead weight. And so I, I'm excited about how I end up investing. Jeez, James, in that means I'm dead weight in three years. Holy cow. <laughs> yeah, I was, I I was wondering. I, I see the sunset on my career around that point. everyone. Thanks for joining me today with me today on my podcast, my dear friend and former independent paint retailer, James Pace. James was a single store dealer in Alabama who was in the business for around 20 years. What makes his story interesting to me and why I wanted to have him on, even though he just left the business, is really how he got in and how he got out of the business, because it's an unusual story that I don't think many dealers get in the way that he did or get out the way that he did. James was sort of a serial entrepreneur, had two degrees and had worked in several different industries and managed to land upon the paint business, buying a store, like I said, some 20 years ago from the beginning, intending just to build the store up into a profitable operation and then immediately sell it and move on to something else. And I find that alone unusual. Most of the paint dealers I know either came into the business the way I did through some sort of family channel and stayed in through their career or bought a store or five stores and stayed in over the course of their careers. But very few dealers that I know actually leave the industry early. James is in his 40s with plans to work and do something else for the next 20 years of their career. The other thing that I find really interesting about James and his time in the paint industry is James is the only dealer that I'm aware of who sold his business for a significant multiple over EBITDA. So that is a multiple of his earnings before interest and dividends and tax and depreciation as well. And so that's interesting. I've been involved. I've shared this before in my blog and even here in my podcast, I've been involved over the years in, I don't know how many sales of how many paint stores and I've known even about hundreds more over the course of my 30 year careers. I know of very few, maybe zero that sold for a significant multiple of earnings. When James and I were talking about that after he sold the stores, he told me that that was by design. That was his intent from the very beginning. And he had a plan on exactly how to do that. And so I thought it would be interesting, particularly for the dealers that follow along uh, to hear about how James did it and think about how some of his lessons can apply to your business. At some point, we all do get older and we all do need to get out of our businesses. So Give James a listen. Let me know what you think. Brian, put my cell phone number up there. Shoot me a text. Let me know what you think of this episode or any of the other work I'm doing. Like and subscribe, and we'll see you on the next episode. Everyone, thanks for joining me today. With me today on my podcast is my very dear friend, James Pace. James, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Good morning. And James, I've shared with you before, you're the only dealer that I've ever met who got into owning paint stores with the intention of just having this as a portion of your career and, and then getting out on that plan. And, and then the other thing that I thought made for an interesting episode is you're the only paint dealer I'm aware of that sold their store for a multiple of their earnings. And so those are the things that I really want to talk about. I thought we'd start with just you sharing a little bit of your career and then specifically your paint career, what led to where you're at now. 
Well, yeah, absolutely. And thanks again for having me on. My, my career in the paint business began 20 years ago. My past was that of academia. I, I was in graduate school. I was uh, on a path to teaching. Economics was my concentration and, and my passion. And You have two and, degrees, if I'm not mistaken, right? I do have two master's degrees. That's correct. That brings thought, up the averages in Alabama, you know. That's right. There's three. When of one us, guy right? has two degrees. Man, that, <laughs> that messes up the math. Yeah. And so, you know, I got engaged to my bride and current wife and mother of my children um, along that way. And so earning a paycheck kind of took place of the dream of teaching. Did teach for a couple of years, taught accounting, and I really enjoyed that and maybe hope to return to teaching at some point. It's extremely rewarding. But anyways, I, I got back to Birmingham. I grew up here, but I was gone for about 10 years. And then I got back to Birmingham and really got into, um, you know, starting businesses, doing startup businesses and getting them up and running. And then once you had a couple of years of financials in place, selling those, and I was able to do that twice. Um, and then I got involved with the paint business. A friend of mine that was a broker said, hey, have you thought about the paint industry? And I really had not, but it was shortly after Warren Buffett had made his you know, entrance into the paint industry. And so I felt like it was at least worth exploring. And so long story short, I bought a paint store that was in bankruptcy, basically from the vendors 19 and a half years ago. And that was Rainbow Paint and Decorating. And so I figured that would be a five to seven year event. It turned into 20 for multiple reasons. Because but it the was paint a, industry is quicksand. That's always been my impression. Yeah. And so, and there, there's certainly that aspect of it, but, you know, I really enjoyed it as well. I thought it was a fun way to make a living and, you know, I was able to take my dog to work with me every day and I was able to leave my suit and tie in the closet. And so there was a lot of things I really liked about it. And I got to one of the greatest pleasures is my father was a, my partner in the business until 2012. And so I was able to work with him, which was a life dream of mine. He, he has a, he's an entrepreneur and business background. He did not have a paint background either. And so he and I showed up day one on the job and our, our employees started training us. And so that's where the ride began. And so you're one of the few dealers I know of who sold their business for a multiple of uh, EBITDA plus the assets. EBITDA right. meaning uh, the earnings before interest and depreciation and probably a few other things. Uh, most paint stores that I'm aware of they basically just sell for assets. And if you're lucky, a few pennies of, of goodwill, but mostly just for assets. But you actually got a multiple of earnings. Let's talk a little bit about how you were able to make that possible. So, yeah, great question. You know, I guess I would just like to say that I felt like from day one, and I still feel like now that the independent paint retailers should be sold for a multiple of earnings plus assets. I agree. But, but in stores order do, true value stores do. That's right. But in order to do that, paint stores have to run themselves in a certain manner to create that value. And that's not typical. And it certainly wasn't typical when we got to looking at rainbow paint, when we were looking at buying it during that due diligence process, it became very apparent that the owner was running the store in a way to show the least amount of profit in order to play the least amount of taxes and, and including, you know, very little cash business was being reported. And so we all know what that means. Yep. And so basically he chose to take the benefit or the equity. He was robbing the equity out of the business 
in order to save on his tax bill. And so therefore, when it comes time to sell the business, there's no value there. Because let me tell you what, an investor that we want in this industry is not going to take your word for anything. And so if you nor should they, from, right? yeah, nor should they. Nor should would. they. You know, I've had I've had dealers looking to sell say to me, well, listen, you know, here's my in here's my statement from Benjamin Moore. You can see I bought a million and a half dollars last year. Doesn't that impute some sort of value? Well, no, not if you didn't make any money off of it. So that, that was one piece of it, you know, that we felt like, you know, um, dealers have to be willing to make that commitment to having their account, their books reviewed monthly, you know, which in Alabama, I'm sure it's different in every region of the country, you know, but you're looking at somewhere, you know, the, the seven to $12,000 a year line item expense for legal and accounting to have that done. But, I, you know, I think over time, you'll prove to get that money back plus some, you know, and so, so that's the correct way to run it instead of the kind of mom and pop way of, oh, we'll just make this adjustment here, adjustment there. You know, it's, it's, it's being willing to make that investment in the business and you're not making that investment on behalf of your vendors. You're making that investment on behalf of your portfolio. And so to create that sort of equity, it, it sounds to me like uh, you did a lot of things that other paint dealers uh, don't do or I should say other paint dealers do do a lot of things that uh, that you didn't do. For example, running your cars through your business and, you know, your dinners with your spouses and stuff like that, which all goes through your business. Your point is that at the end, all of that costs you your equity if you're a dealer and you're doing that. Is that right? That's right. That's right. And so, you know, it's the, it's the Fram oil filter marketing campaign, you know, pay me now or pay me later, you know, and so, and, you know, and, and my CPA told me a long time ago, which he's been a great mentor in my life, is that, you know, his goal for me is for me to pay a tremendous amount of taxes every year. Right. And because if I'm doing that, I'm making a lot of money and I'm making a lot of money. I'm creating equity in my business. And so if you look at your inventory and you divide that up into A, B, C and D items and really, you know, C and D items are almost items that you could go without, certainly D items and move those to a special order kind of status, your A and B items are tremendously valuable and you can't do business without them. So why not pay cash and buy as much of that as you can? And so in the mistake that you can get in there is there's always those snares with, you know, and not all of them are snares, you know, but there's always that, you know, risk of all these buying promos that, that vendors offer, you know, and rebates and dating and all that sort of stuff. And there, that is a useful tool, don't get me wrong, but it's also a slippery slope, you know, because if you bring in A and B items and you sell through those quickly, but you're on 90 day dating, by the time you get to 90 days, you've removed that, that asset off your books and all you've got left is the liability. So therefore, long-term in your business, if you- Well, hopefully and the cash that you sold the bank for. That's right. All right. That's what, <laughs> So, and some of that cash gets eat up with overhead. And so right. you really have to watch that. A lot of those dating orders, you know, they really benefit the manufacturer, you know? Yeah. And so, and having good relationships with your vendors are important, but they're not as important as your business. We, you know, we are not, I, I always looked at it as I was, I was not in the paint industry. I was in business, you know, and, and it, that was the focus, you know, and, and it was always about what was best to create value on my balance sheet. And that was always the focus. And sometimes that aligns with your vendors and sometimes it does not. 
And when it does not, you have to align with your stockholders, which is you and your family and your employees. That's that's who you're responsible to, not the vendors. It sounds to me, James, like you had a, a strategy that called for very high turns of, of, I guess, your A and B products, but also opportunistic buying. Is that what I'm divining from that? Yeah, it's it's certainly a hybrid. And I think step one, and, and I think that, that was what was kind of fun about our perspective is I didn't know the difference between, you know, an A item and a, and, a, and a D item if it hit me in the face when I walked in and started taking over that business. So step one, you know, if you're not involved enough in your business to know, step one, identify what your A and B items are, you know, and those C and D items that you love to have and your reps kind of want you to keep on the shelf to keep showing, kind of look at that and see if that's benefiting you. And so, but, you know, step one, identify what they are. And then, when you can, you know, and, and, and I love this analogy, you know, if you're, if you're McDonald's, the D item is the fruit cup that nobody ever orders. They could be out of it for a week. Nobody would know it. You roll in there and they're out of French fries. You got a serious problem. So if you're McDonald's, French fries is an A item. And so I think that's the best analogy that I've got. And so identify what those A items are in your store. And every time you have the ability to pay cash for them and, slow the turns. You know, I did come in from a standpoint of high turns on your A and B items. And I thought that was great because that was tying up the least amount of my cash. But over time, my perspective kind of changed where, hey, I've got an extra few bucks in my pocket. You know, let's, 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 let's cost a good sold, you know, which is a good thing to manage on the accounting side. Let's load up on those A items. You know, and I always really wanted to do that going into winter. It puts me in a position where come spring, I have full shelves of paid for inventory to where when I came in the business, come spring, you're always low on inventory and you didn't have any cash because you just survived winter and your right. taxes. That was me, by the way. Yeah. That was, that was me. Season. I didn't know you were watching. Yeah. And it's April 15th and she right. got the tax man. Right. And so the way you have to get out in front of that is you're going to maybe have to borrow some money to get through spring, but borrow it from yourself, borrow it from your inventory, you know, of of inventory you've bought correctly. And then you have the opportunity to make a 40, 50% return on it. And there's nothing you can make that kind of return on in the market. Rather than paying a bank for getting return, rather than paying a bank interest for that money. And so I find this really interesting because there are a, a number of dealers who are listening to this, who have, you know, five, six plus stores, uh, and they're listening to you and they're thinking, well, James, you're not exactly shedding any great light here. Uh, But the smaller dealers that don't have a sophisticated sort of view of their business and their management of the finances of their business, a lot of this is new. If you've got one or two stores, your inventory is still a very significant part of your total investment in the business. And so I I think what James is saying is how you manage that ultimately is going to determine whether or not you're creating equity or just creating income. That's that's certainly one piece of it for sure. But, you know, there was a point in my paint career, I had the opportunity to visit just about every paint dealer in the state of Alabama. It was a New Year's resolution of mine and, and it was tied to some other opportunities. And so I really, really enjoyed that. And and each store I visited, I would get the, after we sat down and talked shop, I'd get the business owner to take me to the local barbecue store and so barbecue restaurant. And so, so it turned into a paint and barbecue tour of Alabama. And so some great stories and characters came out of that experience. But 
typical paint operation I saw is, you know, you'd go in and you'd look at their inventory on any given point in time because of the turns of the A and B items. They were always low on their A and B items. They were always heavy on C and D items, and they always had a healthy payables to their to their vendors, and they, and they also had healthy receivables to their contractors. And so the time you clean all that up without getting too deep into it, there wasn't a whole lot of value there. And I don't care what sort of volume you're doing, whether you're doing a hundred million or whether you're doing a million, the math at the end of the day is the same. You know, you have to reverse that. I think you go, you, you've met yourself a wise paint person slash business owner when you walk in their store and there's so many A and B items, there's no room for C and D items. And they have people have very low receivables and very low payables. That guy or girl knows what they're doing. Yeah, for sure. One of the and, and part of this is one of the problems that I think small retailers in in general suffer from, or at least many of them uh, that I've known, is that they underfund their business. They have a tendency to you know take take out a, a couple extra dollars because there's nobody there to stop us. I've done this myself, right, uh, over the course of my career because there's nobody there to stop you from writing yourself a check, and and sometimes you really hamper your business and. If you reduce your equity by doing that, then of course you're reducing the amount that you get to sell at the end as a multiple. If I take out a dollar today, it's worth a dollar. If I leave it in until I sell it, it's worth you know two and a half or three and a half dollars. Right. Well, tell me a little bit about your experience selling the store because that's really interesting to me. Not just that you were able to manage the business itself in such a way that you were able to sell it at a multiple that in and of itself is rare enough, but tell me about how you went about the business of selling it. Did it sell to an existing paint dealer? You know, it did not, you know, it sold to a local investor. So how did you find this prospective buyer? Well, she found us, you know, we, the, she was a client of ours and um, we had finished up a relatively large project at their farm they were doing a remodel job on because they had moved here from Pennsylvania and they had gotten kind of settled at home. Um, and then they were looking for businesses to invest in and had been looking for about a year and couldn't find any business that they trusted the, the financials. And so um, not only did, did, did she and her husband kind of fall in love with our business and our staff, you know, my, my least tenured team member had been with me 13 years and and kind of you know walking away from some of those relationships you know for, at least on a daily basis was certainly a hard part of the decision certainly consider those people family and wish them well moving forward and i think they will do well moving forward but she approached me about possibly selling the business and i and i thought she was really just trying to be kind and compliment us and and then quickly realized it was more than that and we began a due diligence process that took about two months it moved pretty quickly i would say the whole process was you know once we kind of got into it was 10 weeks something like that and so anyways i that we, we closed on december 31st i've been out of the industry now i guess for six weeks as prep for this you had used the term leverage imbalance which i actually made a note of in a good, healthy relationship, you should feel like you understand 
what it is that you give your vendors and what it is that you get from them. And there needs to be some balance between that, right? The fulcrum needs to be roughly in the center. And, and I understand there are some dealers that will say things like, well, you know, I'm just a local dealer. I have one or two stores. How can I be in the middle of that? How can my fulcrum be in the middle against, you know, Benjamin Moore or Hunter Douglas or Pittsburgh or any of these big players? But there are strategies that you can use. One of them that, that I used in my business often, which I've blogged about frequently and, and often has gotten me in trouble with, with my relationships with my paint vendors when I did have stores, was the idea of never having just one paint vendor, right? I, I never had just one paint vendor. As a matter of fact, I just blogged. I don't know if you caught my blog this week. I was writing about a guy who worked for me for about 25 years or so and found a mixing stick from a store that he and I, he had opened when he was the manager there. And it had uh, on there, it had all the brands. And at the time, this would have been in around the year 2000. At the time, we were stocking dealers of PPG, Pratt & Lambert, and Benjamin Moore at that new store. And, and I felt that that was, to me, a strategy that, right, that made it possible for me to keep that fulcrum towards the center so that the leverage imbalance was somewhat close. I should say the leverage was somewhat close to uh, balance. And so that's why when you said that, I was like, wow, James kind of got a strategy like I tried to employ over the course of my career. That's right. And having that mixture of vendors gives you the opportunity to run your sales at a 40 to 50% margin, which is where you should be in this industry. And if anybody's trying to convince you, you should be in the mid thirties, they probably work for a manufacturer. Right. And, and so, because if you're selling paint in the mid thirties on, on accounts to painters, you're not making money. You may be churning some, some cash through your business, but you're not seeing the profits that you could be seeing. And so, and there's several ways to address that. You know, obviously if you, you're in a, a very dense market with other dealers around you, it's harder to do that, but you still can do that by bringing products to your market that aren't currently there. There's the last several years I was in the industry. I was interested to talk to any manufacturer that did not have distribution in Alabama or the Southeast. Almost exclusively, that's who I wanted to speak with. You know, if there was another dealer down the road and had your product and you were trying to get me to bring it in, that's just playing into the manufacturer's hand of getting more distribution on the backs of the independent. And I wasn't interested in playing that game. And so now that you're sort of at the end, what's in store for you? You know, I, I don't know. That's what, you know, Emily and I have had a lot of fun late night conversations, kind of dreaming about what's next. You know, fortunately, I, you know, I, I have time. I don't have to rush into anything. And so I don't know if I'm staying in the industry or not. I'm certainly looking at doing that, but you know, I didn't Would see you buy myself. another business, James, or are you looking to work for somebody? What's your plan? You know, I'm not sure. You know, I, I don't think I'm looking for a job at this point, you know, certainly looking for an investment opportunity, maybe in this channel or, or maybe not. I, you know, um, what, what Emily and I are doing is we're leaving the door open for the Lord to lead us where we need to be. And so, and as I sit here today, I, I don't know, I want to go somewhere where I can make a contribution to where you know, my personality type is a problem solver. You know, I would, I would get tremendous satisfaction out being able to step in somewhere and help somebody solve a problem and, and bring value. And, um, but at the same time, not 
not looking for a job. I think I've been working for myself for a long time and that would be an, an interesting transition, but you know, if that's where the Lord leads, that's where he leads, you know? And I had, uh, when I sold my stores, I had a, uh, one year agreement in place with, uh, Benjamin Moore and, and, uh, to work for them as a consultant and then really no plans beyond that. And what I would say is that if you're looking for opportunities within this space, they exist, right? And, and so just keep your eyes open to uh, anything that meets the criteria that you're looking for. And it wouldn't necessarily have to be another you know, paint store. I don't know why you would want to own another paint store, but there are all sorts of businesses uh, that are dealing in this space where you could uh, basically keep a lot of your network around you and take advantage of having that same network around you while still doing something else. Yeah. And I love this industry, you know, and so um, I love talking about it, as you can probably tell over this yep. segment, you know, I yep. can, um, it's, it's, uh, so cer- certainly open to that. And, and certainly, you know, I figure I have 15 years left. I'm about to be 46. I feel like I have 15 years left where I'm physically and mentally going to be able to make a contribution and not be dead weight. And so I, I'm excited about how I end up investing. Jeez, James, in that means I'm dead weight in three years. Holy cow. <laughs> yeah. I was, I I was wondering. You I you took. Yeah. <laughs> I see the sunset on my career being around that point. And so, but, but maybe not, you know, and so I, I'm not the personality type. I'm not going to sit at home. I'm a busy body until about four or five o'clock in the afternoon. And then that's when I kind of run out of juice. I'm a morning person. And so, so, uh, you know, Emily's not going to let me sit around the house very long. James, I've always considered you one of my closest friends in the, in the industry. And so I really wish you the very best of luck. And I hope that you're able to find something. And I, I hope that you'll come on and update us on how your post dealership life is going. Great. Well, Hey, thank you so much for having me on today. And, and, uh, it's been a real joy and it's been it's been a real pleasure getting to know you and consider you a close friend too and and i know you and i will continue to have conversations about this industry and this channel and because uh you know we both are obviously passionate about that